If you've got a Bible, uh, get it to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, if you need a good Bible, get one at Guest Connections. Pick that up for you. Uh, pick that up afterwards. We're going to be in Luke 20, looking at verses 20 through 40 today. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're trusting in Him, you have a present-day citizenship in heaven. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 3 writes this, starting in verse 12, Not that I have already reached the goal or am already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. And then skipping to verse 18, For I have often told you, and now say again with tears, Paul writes, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame, and they are focused on earthly things. Our citizenship in heaven is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject everything to Himself. Believers in Christ don't become citizens of heaven when we get to heaven. Rather, you're given that unchanging identity at your conversion to Christ. And as a citizen of heaven, that shapes and transforms how we live life here on this earth. In the brief time that we've been given, and it's brief. As Paul writes, it causes us to strain toward what is ahead, to keep growing up in Jesus, and it affects daily life here as we live in this world for His glory and name alone. And also as present day citizen of heaven, it causes us to eagerly await for what is ahead as believers. And what's ahead? It's the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus, Jesus Christ, and the resurrection of the dead, where believers in Christ will be given new, glorious, never breaking down again, resurrected bodies, and enjoy for all eternity the fellowship of the Lord and the Lord's people from all history and every tribe, tongue, and nation, no more sorrow, strain, sin, suffering in the life to come. Here in Luke 20, Jesus deals with both subjects, both the daily earthly life of citizens of heaven and the resurrected eternal life that is to come for citizens of heaven. So I pray that today's message encourages us in that, in that present-day citizenship that we have here today, as well as the one that we eagerly await for, to enjoy for all eternity. As Jesus said in John 11, verses 25 and 26, He says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in Me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in Me will never die. And then He asks, do you believe this? Do you believe this? I pray you would believe that truth today. We're in Luke 20. We're in the days leading up to the death of Jesus Christ. So conflict is escalating in these chapters, and yet Jesus is still in control. He's sovereign over all, even when the circumstances appear chaotic. We've seen that the singular goal of the religious leaders in Jesus' day is to stop the work of Jesus. And long into the book of Acts, 
That will be their goal, and yet it is useless. It is useless to fight against a good and sovereign supernatural God. They assumed that his death on a Friday would be it but God. But God, it was all part of God's sovereign plan of redemption. He would rise again on the third day. Sunday was coming, and he would rise. We saw a couple weeks ago how the leaders were trying to trap Jesus in questioning. That will happen again in today's passage. And it's happened throughout the gospel stories. If we go back to Luke 11, 53 and 54, we read, The scribes and the Pharisees began to oppose him fiercely and to cross-examine him, Jesus, about many things. They were lying in wait for him to trap him in something he said. I've coached 7th grade boys basketball now for 15 years. We just finished up our season a couple weeks ago. One thing I enjoyed as a player, one thing I enjoyed doing as a coach is trapping the opponent defensively, meaning two of our defenders have trapped or stuck the player with the ball in a position that is in a no-win situation for them. Years ago, I had a player tell me, hey, coach, I'm not going to be at practice this weekend. And I said, why? What's going on? Well, I'm going to a trapping convention with my dad. And a trapping convention, huh? And knowing full well that he is not talking about basketball trapping. He's not talking about a 1-2-2, 1-3-1, 2-2-1, full court, half court, run and jump, any of these kind of basketball terminology. We knew this guy and the boots that he would wear in to practice. He is not talking about basketball trapping. He's talking about trapping animals. And he's going to go to a convention with his dad to learn more about trapping. I've grown up here my entire life. I've never heard of a trapping convention. Maybe you have, and I've been living under a rock. But he missed practice that weekend for a trapping convention. This is a sure sign you know you're coaching in a small town when this happens. The religious leaders of Jesus' day, the ones who want to stop the work and ministry and mission of Jesus, are seeking to trap Jesus, to put him into a no-win situation through questions where no matter what answer he gives, it will lead him to being stuck and thus silenced. So in today's passage, it's Q&A with Jesus. Two different situations that we'll read of, both intended to try to trap Jesus in the questions, and yet he's unable to be trapped. He turns both questions around. Last week in the passage that Pastor Kent had us look at, verse 19, it says, Then the scribes and the chief priests looked for a way to get their hands on him, Jesus, that very hour because they knew he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. And then moving into the first Q&A with Jesus, verse 20, in the CSB translation, they watched closely and sent spies who pretended to be righteous so that they could catch him in what he said to hand him over to the governor's rule and authority. So the Pharisees are looking for a clean way to not get their hands dirty, but still get Jesus taken care of. They're self-righteous cowards. And they recruit spies who have the appearance of righteousness, but are deceivers to try to catch Jesus in the wrong. The spies are hired by the Pharisees to try to do what they themselves have not been able to do yet. Throughout these final days of Jesus' earthly life, we see them kind of pulling the strings in the background, spinning the public narrative to try to move their evil agenda forward. 
in this situation, they need to see the public opinion of Jesus turn against Christ. Verse 21, they questioned they question him. Teacher, we know that you speak and tr- teach correctly. And you don't show partiality, but teach truthfully the way of God. Be discerning, loved ones, when flattery comes your way. Be discerning when flattery comes your way. We see in a situation such as this, it is simply a setup for what is next. Although what they said is true, that Jesus is accurate in his teaching. He doesn't show partiality. He does speak truth. Their motives in complimenting Jesus are not pure. They're intended to trap. Verse 22, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Here's the trap that they try to set for Jesus. If Jesus says yes, that it's lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, then the Jewish people will hate him for saying that. He will be discredited with the people because the Jewish people all hated Roman oppression and the subsequent taxes that came with it. A yes answer makes him an enemy to the people. And if Jesus answered the other way, if he said, it's not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, then while he's won over the people, he's now an enemy of Rome. He's in serious trouble with the Roman government, and they would consider him a traitor for such a comment. Since Roman occupation began, they have required the Jews to pay taxes. And the specific tax that the spies are referring to here in verse 22 is what's called a poll tax. It was a tax that was paid straight to Caesar. No middleman, no tax collector like Matthew in between. It was a tax that in a direct way acknowledged Roman oversight and control. And so if Jesus says that such a tax is unlawful, then such a comment riles up the Romans and would more than likely lead to the death of Jesus, which the Pharisees would love, because then their hands would be clean. Will they be able to trap Jesus if you're laying down bets in your rows or at home? The answer is no. Verse 23, but detecting their craftiness, because Jesus knows the heart of man. That hasn't stopped, loved ones. He still knows the heart of men and women. He discerns the ill intentions of the spies and their question. He said to them, show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription does it have? Caesar's, they said. Well, then he told them, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. They were not able to catch him in what he said in public and being amazed at his answer, they became silent. A denarius was a Roman silver coin that represented an average day's wage. It was a coin that was used on a daily basis for the people and a type of coin that would have been used to pay the poll tax. And on that coin was the image of Caesar on one side and the inscription calling him an emperor divine. The image of the Caesar on one side was also a reminder of where the coin originally came from. It was put into use in the culture by the government led by Caesar Now, among the Jews, their own currency, they did not have images on the coins because they would have held to the second commandment of the Ten Commandments that said, you shall have no other gods before me. So the image, the idea of an image of Caesar on a coin, let alone an inscription calling him divine, it would have been idolatrous to the Jewish people. And yet in daily life, in order to pay taxes, they would have to use a a denarius. So if 
if Jesus simply says, yes, the tax is lawful, then, then the Jewish li listener could come to the conclusion that he is then saying it's okay to reject the commandment to have no other gods before the one true God. And he also severely disappoints the Jewish zealots who were looking for Jesus to deliver them from political oppression from Rome. Jesus refuses to give a yes or no answer to a question that is not answered as simply as yes or no. That's wisdom. That's wisdom. Instead, he says, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So Jesus affirms two realities, two true realities. And if one is true, it doesn't mean the other is false and vice versa. And at the same, uh, same time, these two realities are most certainly not at the same level of authority. So first of all, Caesar is on the coin. And so Jesus says, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Recognize the civic and political authority of Caesar in their life and honor that authority through the paying of taxes. Caesar requires a poll tax, pay the poll tax. But then Jesus also says, give to God the things that are God's. And God's authority is greater than all. Caesar is not at the same level as the Lord. Rome was the greatest empire on the earth at the time. But Rome's power is measly and tiny compared to the eternal triune God who is all-powerful, all-wise, ever-present in this world. Rome's kingdom will fall in less than 400 years from this moment. God's kingdom will endure and has endured and will endure for all eternity. Nothing can shake it. Nothing can shake it. Our God owns everything. Here's three biblical examples of, of the Lord stating that very truth. Exodus 19.5, the Lord declares, All the earth is mine. Deuteronomy 10.14, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Psalm 24.1 says, The earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants belong to the Lord. So to pay the poll tax to Caesar is not a move of idolatry. It's not an action that is breaking commandment two of the Ten Commandments because such an action is held in its proper perspective. The amount that they are to give to Caesar is measly compared to what they are to give to the Lord. As believers in Christ, we are to give Him our life, our daily way of life. All of life is worship. Romans 12.1 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, which he's laid out from Romans 1 to chapter 11, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. So Jesus is speaking of these two realities that exist in most people's lives, including ours here, that we are citizens of an earthly nation, a kingdom, with political boundaries and civic government and leaders and laws. And for those of us who are in Christ, we are at the same time, to a much greater degree, citizens of heaven, an eternal kingdom. As 1 Peter 2.9 says, God's people are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
a people for His possession, a, a people who live for the One who died and rose again for them, a people who, who proclaim the praises of the One who has pulled us out of darkness and into His marvelous and transforming and saving light. In this short exchange, Jesus doesn't describe in detail all the implications of how to live as a citizen of heaven in the midst of being a citizen of a political nation. We can conclude from Jesus' reply that while paying taxes to support a civic government is, is an appropriate move, our greatest loyalty and devotion is not to earthly kings and kingdoms who will fall, who are mere men. Rather, our life's allegiance is to our King of kings, Lord of lords, who owns it all, whose image we've been made in, whose image is not contained to a piece of silver, whose name is above all, at whose name every knee will one day bow, and who's called us to an eternal mission, a mission that we only have with the brief time that we've been given, a mission to go and make disciples of the people around us, to the nations, to the generations that follow us. So as it relates to money, Heather and I pay our taxes. I can't say I do it with overflowing joy in my spirit, okay? It's this time of year, like, sweet. <laughs> Nor can I say that I always agree with how the government spends the tax dollars given to them. But I can say I've never regretted giving financially to the Lord's kingdom and His work. Never. I can say that we give cheerfully to the Lord's work with overflowing joy, knowing that we're following Jesus' command. We're going to store up treasure in heaven so, so moth and rust and the things of this earth can't destroy it. I'm going to send the money ahead because gospel ministry matters. Because to reach people with the gospel matters. To minister to people with the gospel matters. Eternally matters. Things of this earth are so temporary, loved ones. So brief. Eternity is so long and so glorious. It's worth storing up treasure in heaven. Giving to God what is God's is also a way that, that Heather and I can attack the bent in our hearts that you all share, and that bent is toward idolatry. That bent is living for earthly things. It's one way we are seeking to live out Romans 12.1 to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord. This is our true act of worship, an act of worship that, that demonstrates and speaks to our own hearts, declares to our own hearts, the Lord, you own it all. We simply want to manage it for your glory. Verse 26, they were not able to catch him in what he said in public. And being amazed at his answer, they became silent. Now, in Luke 23, a little bit later on this spring, we'll see this group spin this and actually accuse Jesus of forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, which is not what he just said. But they're spin doctors. This is what the Pharisees and the religious leaders are. They move the narrative to fit their agenda. Jesus is unable to be trapped. He's too wise. Now, in the next story, a new group of people with the same type of agenda will seek to try to catch Jesus Verses 27 and 28, some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came up and questioned him. Teacher, Moses wrote for us what 
that if a man's brother has a wife and dies childless, his brother should take the wife and produce offspring for his brother. So who are the Sadducees? Well, they are another group of Jewish leadership like the Pharisees, but with different beliefs. They were a group of people who specifically did not believe there was a resurrection. So the little saying, little mnemonic goes, they're Sadducees. So they're sad, you see, because they don't believe in the resurrection. They also are people who only see the first five books of the New Testament, the Pentateuch, as authoritative. They're also a group of people who did not believe in angels. So they begin to pose this outrageous scenario to Jesus to try to make it appear that this idea of of a resurrection for believers is such a foolish idea. Verse 28 is referring to what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 25, an Old Testament practice where if a married man dies childless, it was his brother's responsibility to conceive a child with his brother's widow and then count that child as a descendant of the deceased brother's family line. Do I need a whiteboard? Do I need to get a whiteboard? Are you tracking with me? The story continues then in verse 29. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. Also the second and the third took her. In the same way, all seven died and left no children. Finally, the woman died too. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will will the woman be? For all seven had married her. This is the question that they pose of Jesus. So this poor wife has had a brutal, brutal time. She's lost seven husbands in all. My last grandma passed away several years ago. She was my uh, last grandparent that I had. And she had outlived three different husbands. One uh, that my, my mom's dad I never knew died when my mom was 12, 10, somewhere in there. And then uh, two more grandpas that I knew. She outlived all of them. This poor woman takes the award for grief and sorrow. And so the Sadducees ask Jesus, so when she gets to heaven, who's going to be her husband? Which of the seven are going to win the blue ribbon? Verse 34, Jesus told them, the children of this age marry and are given to marriage, but those who are counted worthy to take part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they can no longer die because they are like angels and, and are children of God because, or since they are children of the resurrection. Moses even indicated in the passage about the burning bush that the dead are raised where he calls the Lord, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living because all are living in him. Some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, and they no longer dared to ask him anything. I love how they try to silence Jesus, and both times he flips it, and they are silenced. Jesus is telling the Sadducees, you don't under- understand the difference between this age and the age to come, this earthly life and the new eternal resurrection to come. The new heavens and the new earth isn't just a slightly improved or tweaked continuation of this world and its systems and practices. It's completely different, including in the relationship of marriage. In this age, people marry, and weddings take place, and we announce babies being born. In eternity, wedding celebrations won't happen. 
A wedding celebration between a husband and a, and a wife won't happen between a man and a woman. There's no birth announcements. There's no weddings that we will attend. So the wife who was married seven times won't have seven husbands, nor will the Lord choose. That's brother number three. And then that brother th- three, you walk away with a number one in his hand saying, oh, suckers, I beat you all. I'm the winner. Now between you and me, This is a very confidential moment right here. The live stream happening between you and me. My wife of coming up on 26 years doesn't like what Jesus says here. She's not happy about it. Don't tell her. She's not happy about it. She doesn't like the idea that that we won't be married in eternity. Now, because she doesn't like it doesn't mean Jesus is wrong, though. Okay? You can let her know that afterwards. Because we don't like something that Jesus says doesn't diminish the truth of what Jesus says. Just, I'm just saying, okay? Heather tells me she's going to sneak over to my room someday in heaven. <laughs> but I tell her that the desire to sneak will be gone in heaven. <laughs> this is not like summer camp, okay? It's new heavens and new earth, so, to, so the desire to sneak will be gone. So in eternity, here's what I know. My wife will be over it. My wife will be over it because that strong will which I love will be fully and completely sanctified in all its glory along with mine. But this side of the resurrection, she will still joke about not being happy with it. So in eternity, people will not marry and be given in marriage is what Jesus says. Heather will be my sister in Christ. She is now my closest sister in Christ in the family of God. I'm confident that we will know one another as husband and wife just like we did here in this age. That we will know that this is the legacy of marriage faithfulness that we've lived out. That we will be able to look back on that. We'll know our four kids as of this date are all in Christ. And we will enjoy eternity with them and Lord willing future generations. It's not like our memories get erased in some weird sci-fi movie. And if she outlives me in this life, which is the prayer, that is the prayer. We either go out in a blaze of glory together or I, or she outlives me. Okay. That's the only two options, Lord, only two options. (laughs) And I am completely serious. (laughs) If she outlives me, I will rejoice at the day we are reunited. I would anticipate that we'll even have a close relationship Being here long enough, some of you have lost spouses, husbands, and wives who knew the Lord, who trusted in the Lord, and that will be a sweet, sweet day to be reunited with your closest brother or sister in Christ and rejoice in God's goodness and His grace that has brought you home amidst the entire family of God. Jesus is saying it will look different in the age to come. Because the institution of marriage was created by the Lord for this age alone. For various reasons, here are three of them. For close relational community with one another as husband and wife. When the the Lord saw Adam alone, he made a helper suitable for him. Marriage was also created as a way to fulfill the command to be fruitful and multiply to raise up further generations, to pass on faith in Christ to children and their children and so on. And also marriage was created 
for this age as a picture of a spiritual reality. That the church is the bride of Christ and Jesus is the bridegroom. And we see the metaphor of marriage and bride and groom given as one way to describe the church. Ephesians 5, 25-27 says, Christ loved the church and gave Himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the Word. He did this to present the church to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. So the wedding that takes place in eternity is this holy, righteous bride of Christ approaching the bridegroom because the bridegroom's faithful work to bring about holiness in the bride. That's a sweet, sweet picture. So lifelong marriage in this age between a husband and wife is to illustrate that eternal spiritual reality where the church is the bride of Christ washed and cleansed by the faithful bridegroom Jesus. In eternity though, there is unhindered pure fellowship and community among the family of God and there is no need to be fruitful and multiply because as Jesus tells the Sadducees, death is no more. Death is something of this age, but not in the age to come. Only eternal life for those who are in Christ. Like angels no longer experience death, Jesus says, neither will the people of God. Jesus is not teaching here that we become angels in heaven, that we drop some clothes and put on some weight and pick up a harp. He's not saying that. We don't become angels. We experience a bodily resurrection. New heavens, new earth, a body that doesn't break down anymore. No more ibuprofen. No more as you sit down, stand up. None of that. Never tire. Death is no more. Jesus brings the Sadducees back to the words of Moses in the burning bush moment, Exodus 3. Moses has asked the Lord, so when people ask who you are, who do I say that you are? Who do I tell the people who who sent me? And God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered in every generation. The Lord is saying, these these fathers of the Jewish nation, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who have passed from this age, they're still living in eternity. And that God is still their God. It wasn't that the Lord was their God. No, He is their God. This is present tense because they are alive in Him. As Jesus says in Luke 20, verse 38, He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, because all are living in All are living to Him. So for those of us who have lost loved ones who are in Christ, starting with those closest to us, the ones that we will grieve this side of heaven, and we will continue to grieve and yet with hope, take hope today. Be assured that God is the God of of the living. And He is their God today. And He is present with them. And they are present with Him, unhindered, in ways that 
we can't imagine this side of heaven. So my fellow citizens of heaven, be encouraged today as we eagerly wait for our Savior from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject everything to Himself, transforming our body of our humble condition in this age into the likeness of His glorious body in the age to come. We serve a God who is living. He's not dead like an idol. He's not asleep like an elderly man in the corner. He's alive. And because you put your faith and trust in Him, you're alive in Him. As one author said, God's relationship to His people does not end at their death, for they live on to worship Him in heaven. John 11 tells the story of Lazarus passing away, the brother of Martha. We pick up the story in verse 23. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told Martha. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? He asked Martha. And she says, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who comes into the world. Loved ones, do you believe, like Martha, about who Jesus is because he is the Messiah who not only was born, who lived, who died, but rose again. He rose again. And he's coming back again because he's unbeatable. He's untrappable. He's too good not to give your entire life in worship to him. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you that our citizenship is secure in heaven. It is a present day reality for us. Thank you that you've called us out of darkness into your transforming light. Thank you that in Christ, we, your people, are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for your possession. Enable us to live faithfully, worshiping you above all. Enable us to be on mission in the time that we've been given here. Enable our words and our way of life to declare your praises for you alone are our king. You own it all. And by your blood and by your body, you have purchased us back, redeemed us back from the slavery of sin and set us free so that we might worship you. And that our bodies, our life would be a living and true sacrifice for you. Empower us with your spirit to live eagerly and expectantly for the life to come. To live with hope because you're the God of the living, including the loved brothers and sisters in Christ who have gone before us and who we dearly miss. Thank you that you are their God now and there in your glorious presence. Thank you that in the age to come, a new earth and a new heavens await where we will continue to be your people and dwell with you, where you will wipe away every tear and death will be no more. Grief and crying and pain will be no more. No more hospice houses, no more hospitals, no more nursing homes, no more funerals. Simply life in the midst of your glory and goodness. The previous things, the things that have been marked and stained by sin will have passed away and all things new will have come. We're grateful, Lord. Enable us to live with hope. We pray this in the name of our risen and reigning Jesus. Amen.
Paul's words again in Philippians 3. For I have often told you, and now say it again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. They're focused on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly wait for a Savior. From there, the Lord Jesus Christ, He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject everything to Himself. Everything is subject to Jesus Christ, including us. So may we worship Him. May we live out Romans 12.1 as a citizen of heaven this week in wherever the Lord has providentially placed us for His mission and His ministry.